Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio Romans 11 verses 1 through 10. Our context is this, chapter in chapter 10, Paul has talked about the necessity of righteousness by faith, how you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and then you, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has risen him from the dead, and you get saved, and then Paul talks about the necessity of preaching the gospel, the elect is not going to come in automatically. We've got to preach the gospel both to Jews and to Gentiles. And, of course, there's always that theme of why are only a few Jews believing if God is faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham. Paul mentions that problem in chapter 10. He's going to more deeply cover that problem here in chapter 11. So we start now in Romans 11, verse 1. Paul says this, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, for I too am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Now Paul says, I asked then, what's he referring to? He's referring to the last verse probably in Romans 10, the previous chapter, Romans 10:21. Paul said this, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have spread out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. And so Paul says, well, since it is clear that God is spreading out his hands to a people who are disobedient and defiant, the Jews are disobedient and defiant, and uh-oh, does that mean that God is not going to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham of land, seed, and blessing? Land, descendants, and blessing? Land, offspring, and blessing? Is God rejected his people because he's not going to fulfill that promise? And Paul answers that in verse 1, absolutely not. Now, what is his first argument that God has not rejected his people? I always find this interesting, what Paul says here. He appeals to one Jew. One Jew alone, he says, look, if it's just one Jew, by golly, those promises to Abraham of land, seed, and blessing are fulfilled. And that one Jew was himself. Paul says, for I too am an Israelite. Okay, I'm an Israelite, I believe, so therefore God's promises to Abraham were fulfilled. I am a blessing to the nation. I mean, Paul could, if you really get down into his argument, he could say, look, Abraham's promises about the land was fulfilled because the Jews got the promised land. There... His the promise, promise about a seed is fulfilled because I have I am a, a Jewish guy. I'm so I'm descended from Abraham. That's fulfilled. And the other part of the blessing was that the seed would be a blessing to the nations. Well, Paul says I'm going to be a blessing to the nations. Or you could say, well, the seed was Jesus, and I'm preaching Jesus, and Jesus' seed, Jesus' believers, are a blessing to the nation. But at any rate, that's what that's how his argument goes. Now, Paul, in order to confirm his Jewish credentials says, I'm an, Israel, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, that makes me a Jew, that makes me an Israelite, and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He even gets down to quoting his tribe. Paul does this several times, a couple times in his letters, Second Corinthians 11:22. are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Paul was not ashamed of his Jewish roots. Philippians 3, 5, circumcised the eighth day. He's referring to himself here, okay? Circumcised the eighth day, Paul was, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. That means his parents were Hebrews. Regarding the law of Pharisees, not only was he a Jew, he was of the strictest sect of the Jews, a Pharisee. So, Abraham's promises have been fulfilled because I believe in him and I'm going to be a blessing to the nation. Romans 11, verse 2 and 3. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or don't you know... What the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. So Paul then 
continues with his argument that God has not rejected the Jews just because a few people believe. For one thing, he hasn't rejected Paul. And so Paul just makes a summary statement. Look, he hasn't rejected his people. And in fact, his people he foreknew. Now notice, Paul does not say here he foreknew. He had advanced knowledge of the status of the Jews. And that, my friends, I'm ashamed to say is how I often have read that verse. And that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't say that, actually. It says the people he foreknew. It didn't say he foreknew the, their status. He foreknew the people themselves personally. Now, the reason I make that point is, is because the word foreknew means foreloved. Because the word knew often means love. It means foreloved. Here's some examples. Amos 3, 2. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Now, obviously, Paul didn't. I mean, God didn't just know <laughs> that the Jews existed. Of all the clans of the earth, he knows all of the clans of the earth in an intellectual knowledge sense, but it means I have known you in the sense I have loved you and chosen you out of all the clans of the earth, Amos 3.2. It means Israel was the only nation that God had a covenant relation with. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that God had an abstract intellectual knowledge of Israel. Jeremiah 1.5, this is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, Jeremiah being chosen here is chosen according to the Holman Christian Study Bible, but in the ESV, he's known. I knew you before I formed you in the womb. That shows the closeness of the meaning of the words. One, translator, one translation says, I chose you, Jeremiah, and the other translation says, I knew you. So that brings in another word that's close related. No, no means to know intellectually. It can mean no to choose. It means no to love. So no, choose, and love are the same thing according to the meaning of this word. Matthew seven twenty three. Then I will announce to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Well, obviously Jesus knew who they were intellectually. But it means I never had a personal covenant relationship with you. I never chose you. All right, so Israel as a nation was foreknown. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's not correct. We're going to see later on it was not the nation of Israel that was foreknown, foreloved. It was the remnant individuals from within the nation who were foreknown. Now, I mention that because there's a lot of Armenians say, see there, foreknowledge, as they go back to Romans 9, and say foreknowledge refers to the nation of Israel, not to the individuals in it. And they could appeal to this verse right here. But no. It's a remnant, we'll see later. The majority of Israel, Israel as a nation, was rejected, not foreknown. Now, Paul, in order to appeal to his argument that God has not rejected the Jews because of their small believing number at that time, he goes back to the Old Testament when there is a story where there was a very few people that believed, but nonetheless, God didn't reject his covenant people because he left a remnant. So I'll just call this the remnant argument. He appeals back to Elijah, the story of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Let's look at that. In 1 Kings 19.10, he replied, that's Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. So Elijah felt very much like a remnant. He felt like he was all alone. Four verses later in 1 Kings 19, Elijah says the same thing again. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. 
Those are the people who were the ancestors of the Israelites. Those were the people that were rebellious murderers, murdering the prophets. But God still was faithful with his promise, even through all that rebellion and sin. And Paul is saying, look, if God can stay faithful to his promise back then to those people, he can stay faithful to his promise to the Jews, even now, the same Jews who killed the prophets and who murdered the Messiah. He can still remain faithful because he always has a remnant. He's going to mention the remnant later in the Old Testament, 7,000, who did not bow the knee to Baal. Now let's go through Elijah's complaint here. They have killed your prophets. What's Elijah referring to? This is when before the contest with Jezebel, Elijah's contest with Jezebel, there was another prophet that lived up there in Samaria in the northern part of Israel. He belonged to Ahab. He was he lived under Ahab, and his name was Obadiah. He was a godly prophet. He took a hundred prophets and hid them. This is in 1 Kings 18.4. He took a hundred prophets and hid them, 50 men to a cave, 50 men in one cave and 50 men in the other cave, and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. Now, here's another example. Jezebel's killing all the prophets, and God protects a remnant of the prophets by hiding them in a cave. That's kind of the way God operates. When things get bad, he will protect a remnant. So this is a very good example to help Paul prove his case. Now, notice that Elijah says he was the only one left. Actually, he wasn't. There was a 100 prophets left, 50 in one cave and 50 in the other cave because of Obadiah. Apparently, Elijah didn't know about that. So Jezebel's killing the prophets in Elijah's time, and also the ungodly Israelites tore down God's altars, Elijah says, and Paul quotes Elijah to that effect. When did they kill, tear down God's altars? Well, we don't know exactly. John Gill speculates that it could be old altars the patriarchs had used to use, but they no longer used them, but they still venerated them because they were the patriarchs' altars. Or they were new altars built by faithful Yahweh worshipers in the ten tribes of Israel. Remember, the northern ten tribes were worshiping officially the golden calf, but there, there was always a faithful remnant, and it could be those altars that were, that were being used to sacrifice to God, even though they were supposed to do it in Jerusalem, but they couldn't do it in Jerusalem because they were separated from Jerusalem. And so these altars could have been altars built by faithful worshipers of Jehovah, and then Jezebel found out about it. Jezebel and Ahab, boom, tore them down. And Elijah finishes off by saying, they are trying to take my life. Well, that was true. They were trying to kill him. Jezebel had sent her emissaries out looking for Elijah, if you recall the story, and Elijah had to hightail it down to the desert down there in the Negev in the southern part of Israel. The situation was very bleak in the times of Elijah. The situation is very bleak in the time of Paul, but God is still faithful to his covenant promises because he always preserves a remnant. All of this is very comforting to me, an American who has to live in the most godless, disgusting culture in the history of the universe. Well, maybe it's been as bad back there in Israel's time. It probably was, but it's still pretty bad. I mean, people today don't even know what a boy is and a girl is, and they openly mock Jesus and mock Christianity. Well, they're going to get their judgment, so I, you know, it's going to happen sooner or later. God's not going to let his promises go down. He's not going to let his people go down. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And even though things look real bad now, and people are trying to take our lives as Christians, and it looks bad for the Christians in China, the church is going to keep right on growing and growing and growing, and the remnant will be, the elect, will be gathered into the kingdom, and there's not a ding-dong damnable thing that the secular leftists, the Muslims, the communists, the atheists, the agnostics, anybody can do about it because God is going to win his elect into the kingdom. 
and his promises will be fulfilled and his glory will cover the earth. We go to Romans 11:4. But what was God's reply to him? God's reply to Elijah. I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. There's Elijah's remnant right there. This is recorded in 1 Kings 19:18. God says to Elijah, But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Paul's point was that even Elijah underestimated the number that God had saved. And Elijah was a prophet, a big prophet, well-known prophet, a prophet close to God, and even he got a little bit depressed. But Paul is saying, look, if even Elijah underestimated the number that God had saved, Paul's current readers should not do the same thing. They shouldn't believe that God had forsaken the Jews, as John Gill says. And Steve Ackerson makes a cogent point here. Elijah was scared, tired, and on the run when he made that statement. It's real easy to get emotionally depressed when you're in straits, when your circumstances are dire and oppressive. You tend to be a little bit more pessimistic than you need to be. Romans 11.5, in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace, as Paul continues to make his analogy between the Old Testament Elijah remnant and the current remnant during Paul's time. Paul has already mentioned this remnant in Romans 9.27, where he said, But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Here's some examples of, of remnants being saved out of a mass of perdition. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroyed the whole blasted mess of, of them down there. But Lot, without his wife, Lot and his children made it out of there. A remnant was saved. And this case right here, a remnant, 7,000 people who had not bowed their knees to Baal were saved in the days of Elijah. That's the case we just talked about here. That's the second case. How about the group of survivors after Tiglath-Pileser's capture of northern Israel when Assyria knocked down northern Israel in 722 B.C.? Isaiah 10:21. the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So there are going to be some, some people that survive the disaster. I guess, I don't have this in my notes, but I'm just thinking, how about in A.D. 70, which is in the New Testament times, of course, and in fact is past the time of when Paul is writing but isn't this another example of the remnant getting saved? How about all those believers who got out of Jerusalem, those Christian Jews who escaped to Pella in 66 AD when the Roman general Cestus had surrounded the city, thus surrounding the city with the, the abomination that causes desolation. And then he inexplicably retreated and withdrew and all the crazy zealots who were trying to keep all the Jews locked up in Jerusalem, they went chasing Cestus. And when they chased Cestus, they're no fanatical Jews to hold the Christians in Jerusalem. There's no Romans to hold the Jews in, in Jerusalem. They remember Jesus' Jesus's warning. When you see the armies, the abomination that caused the desolation surrounding Jerusalem, flee. And that's what they did. And one more example of a remnant being saved out of the mass of perdition. Now you notice that Paul refers to the remnant as chosen by grace. If you want to be in that remnant, you've got to be chosen by God by grace. And then you respond to his grace by believing, of course. We don't want to deny free will, but basically, is, are you chosen to be in that remnant? Which means you better be doggone thankful. If you're a Christian and have been blessed all your life, you better never stop God, stop thanking God for choosing you. Because you don't deserve to be in that remnant. Now notice that this remnant which is chosen, which is elect by grace. This shows that there were Jews in Paul's day who believed in Jesus. We know that. Paul himself is a classic example. 
And notice that this is not an election of a nation of Gentiles in place of a nation of Jews, because the Jews were not elected as a nation. God doesn't elect nations. He elects individuals out of the nation, a remnant. In other words, if you're going to say Israel was elected as a nation, you've got to account for the fact that the great majority of them did believe in God, or they were idolaters, or they rebelled against God. So, since this is an election of individual Jews to salvation, this shows that Paul's argument in Romans 9 was about individual believers. And besides, the whole chapters 6, 7, and 8 was all about individual sanctification, individuals getting out from under the law, and failing to try to get righteous by keeping the law, which is weak through the flesh, and all about individuals. It's not about nations in Romans 5, 6, 7. It's it's almost devotional stuff for individuals how to live a godly Christian life. It's not talking about nations. And then all of a sudden we get to Romans 9 and the Armenian says, well, God's talking about elected nations. Oh, no, he wasn't. He was talking about electing the remnant out of nations, the people, the individuals who believe by grace. We go to verse 6, chapter 11. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. He had just said in chapter in verse 5 of Romans 11 that this remnant was chosen by grace, elect by grace, and, and then he says, now, if by grace, and of course he means it, it is, since it is by grace, then it's not by works. Notice there is a total dichotomy here. It's either by grace or it's by works. You cannot fudge the two. You cannot blur the line between the two. There's no compromise between the two. There is a complete dichotomy between works and grace. It cannot be emphasized enough. Because as soon as you put one work in there, grace ceases to be grace. Let's look at the problem the Jews had of trying to be ch chosen by God because of their works. Paul mentions this in Romans 9, verses 30 through 32. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Of course, the stumbling stone was Jesus. Jesus said, you're not going to do work to get to heaven. You've got to believe in me. And they didn't, do, they didn't believe in Jesus, and so they stumbled, fell flat to the ground, and continued to try to keep the law by works. And, of course, we know the law is weak according to the flesh because you can't keep the law by your works because your flesh is weak. And as a result, you're condemned by that holy law, and you are declared to be a sinner not worthy of salvation, and you're lost. And that's what's happened to the majority of Israel. We go to verse 7 of Romans 11. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. Now, of course, the first question that arises here is, oh, well, it's not fair. God hardened people who weren't in the elect, and he just sent them to hell just because he was an arbitrary God who felt like being mean one day. Well, no, that's not what it means. The rest were hardened because of their sin. That was, that was their judicial punishment. They were judicially hardened because of their unbelief, as the NIV Study Bible says. The Jews didn't reject God because God hardened them. Rather, it was vice versa. God hardened them because they had rejected God. Our human responsibility is never done away with by the doctrine of election and predestination. Let's read what R.C. Sproul says about that. Quote, when God hardens the heart, all he does is step away and stop striving with us. For example, the first time I commit a particular sin, my conscience bothers me. In his grace, God is convicting me of that evil. God is intruding into my life, trying to persuade me to stop this wickedness. If he wants to harden me, all he has to do is stop rebuking me, stop nudging me, and just give me enough rope to hang myself. We see in Scripture that when God hardens hearts, 
He does not force people to sin. Rather, he gives them their freedom to exercise the evil of their own desires. All right, now that we've rescued God from charges of arbitrariness and injustice, let's note that Israel did not find what it was looking for. What was it looking for? Righteousness. That's basically what it was looking for. Justification, being declared innocent before God. Being The Jews wanted to be free from their condemnation and guilt for their sin, but they didn't find it. But the elect did find it. The chosen ones, the ones who are in the remnant, they're the ones that find it. That find it. Now notice that it's always a, it's a minority here, a remnant, who finds this salvation. So don't feel too bad if you're in a minority, which you will be many, many, many times. We go to verse 8 in Romans 11. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. What Paul is trying to do is quote the Old Testament to prove his point that God hardens the non-elect, those who are not in the remnant. Where is this written? Well, uh, here's two places in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Deuteronomy 29.4 Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Again, not because God is arbitrary, it's because they didn't want to hear. And so God says, all right, if you don't want to hear, you're not going to hear. I'm not going to give you a mind to understand what you don't want to hear. Isaiah 29.10, For the Lord has poured out on you an overwhelming urge to sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Shut up that spirit of prophecy so they can't see and can't hear. Why? Because they were sinning. So what Paul is doing here, he's showing that Israel's rejection of the Messiah is not a failure on God's part. It Rather, it was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of judgment coming on the Jews because of their unbelief. See, Paul was a learned rabbinic scholar. He could quote the Old Testament off the top of his head. And so he makes the point is, hey, it's it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault that there are a lot of Jews that are not in the remnant. They are being punished. And that's why there's so few people that believe, so few Jews that believe today. And so please quit saying that God's promises aren't true, that God didn't fulfill his promises to Abraham. The reason there's so few Jews today, the reason that the remnant is small is because the Jews have sinned, and God has given them a spirit of insensitivity. That's in the Bible. That's in the Hebrew Scriptures. So what are you complaining about? Now, when Paul says, well, Deuteronomy, let's see. Yeah, Deuteronomy says, yet to this day, the Lord has given you a mind not to understand. Paul quotes that, and he's referring not to the, day, not to the time of Moses. To this day doesn't refer to the time of Moses, but to the time of Paul. He says, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. In other words, this hard-heartedness of the Jews has been in evidence all the way through the Old Testament times, Old Testament history, all the way up to now. So what are you being surprised of that so few people believe? Now, we're going to get to some good news about the Jews coming into the kingdom later on. But for right now, Paul's pointing to the, the, the tininess of the remnant. Romans 11, 9 through 10. And David says, Let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. Paul again appeals to an Old Testament historical example of how Jews were hard. And yet the promise is still alive, even though the Jews were hard back then. He appeals to David. The psalm that David wrote that Paul is quoting from is in Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23. David says this, Let their table set before them be a snare, and let it be a trap for their allies. Let their eyes grow too dim to see, and let their loins continually shake. This is an imprecatory psalm. It's probably spoken by David, probably, spoken by David about his enemies. Paul says it's David, so I assume it's David. 
maybe the psalm was labeled David, and Paul says, so it's David, I don't know. But anyway, let's assume it was David, and he's, he's talking probably about the hard, he was probably referring to the hardened Jews of his day, the enemies of David. And so, as the NIV study Bible says, Paul is using the hardened Jews of David's time to speak against the hardened Jews of Paul's time. He's trying to show what's the results of divine hardening. Again, it's because what they got hardened, because that was their punishment. They deserved it. Notice that in the imprecatory psalm, David says, "Let their eyes, let their feasting become a snare. Even the good things that they do, let it end up getting this like when they feast, let them get gout. When they feast, let them get food poisoning." <laughs> so. I love imprecatory psalms. I, I love it how people always say, oh, I, I just don't like David. He's just not loving. He, I, hey, when you get to hate sin, remember David was a political leader too. Political leaders are not church leaders, okay? They're not dealing with a community of redeemed saints. They're dealing with a bunch of SOBs that want to kill people, and they have to be a little rough on them. It's kind of like dealing with Middle Eastern Muslim terrorists and armies and ISIS and all that stuff. You don't play patty cake with those people. And besides, I don't see anything. I, I often pray for the, for the salvation of the people who hate Christ now in this country, but I also pray imprecatory psalms on their movements that they come fall to the ground and justice will be done on them. I, I, there's no contradiction with that. I would just pray that there's a remnant in the midst of all those crazy people. I mean, after all, back in the 60s, all these hippies who were totally anti-Christ all of a sudden, they started getting saved. We got the Jesus movement. There are people today that are dedicated Christians that got saved out of that drug-infested mess back in the 60s. So it can happen with these social justice warriors and all these fools that are going around telling us that we can, men can marry men and women can marry women and we can have throuples and, and threesomes and whatever. And that we can give puberty-arresting drugs to little babies so they can wait till they get old enough to choose their own gender and such insanity that's going on today. Well, even in the midst of that, people can get saved out of that. Now, in verse 10, it says, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent. Now, there is a judicial hardening of people who don't believe. And the interesting question is, well, maybe though that hardening will lift in the future and that people that are acting like this will then become get saved and you you hear stories of people really sunk into sin and get saved like these pornography stars oh god boy you talk about degraded i mean just living filthy lives and then all of a sudden they get saved well they weren't so hard that they were beyond the point of repentance because god's opened their heart and they got saved now i assume so i assume when it says they cannot see i think that what david was saying they cannot see at the present time Steve Ackerson has somewhat of a contradictory opinion to that. He said, we should not expect many Jews to respond to the gospel. Well, I'm not so sure about that. And there's lots of Muslims responding to the gospel, and they're pretty hard. And we're going to see later on when we talk about Jews coming back into the olive tree, getting grafted in, in Romans 11, at the end of the chapter here. That's Jews coming in. Many people, uh, many people expect multitudes of Jews to come in at the end of time of, of different theological persuasions. Different interpretations of Romans 11. So I don't know. I don't think I agree with that statement. We should not expect many Jews to respond to the gospel. I frankly don't know how many Jews are going to respond to the gospel, but I hope there's a lot. And I don't think this verse forecloses that because I think that the hardening is at the present time. But the hardening can become an unhardening by the sovereign grace of God. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished. Verses 1 through 10 in Romans 11. And in Romans Chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, we're going to look at how the Gentiles are grafted into the kingdom. And then in the 
audio after that, we'll talk about how the Jews get grafted back into the kingdom since they have so fallen out of the kingdom now because of the rebellion and so forth. But there's going to be some that are grafted back in. So the Gentiles next audio coming in, the Jews the next audio after that coming in. I hope you stay tuned for those two and I hope you enjoyed this audio. 